Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. In this episode, we speak with Gabriela Safran, author of the new book, Recording Russia, Trying to Listen in the 19th Century. Gabriela Safran, the Eva Chernoff Loke Professor in Jewish Studies, teaches in the Department of Slavic Languages and Literatures at Stanford University. Her books include The Worlds of S. Ansky, Wandering Soul, and The Whole World in a Book. We spoke to Gabriela about how Russian writers in the mid-19th century worked hard to accurately record the voices and sentiments of the emerging middle classes. The fascinating story of Dostoevsky's ritual insult battles and the ancient connection between birds and the human language. Hello, Gabriella. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Happy to be talking with you. Congratulations on your new book, Recording Russia, Trying to Listen in the 19th Century. Now, I like in the introduction of the book, you say, listening is not easy. Uh, Tell us how it came about to write a book about listening. Yeah, well, the book I wrote before this one was about a late 19th century Russian and Yiddish playwright and ethnographer, S. Ansky. And in doing the research for that, I noticed so many points in memoirs about him where people said he was such a good listener. He was so good at listening to to the people, to the Jews he collected folklore from, to Russian miners. And I thought, wow, these people, they're like obsessed by listening. What does that mean? And then I, I really finished that book with this open question for me. What, what does it mean to pay attention to someone else's listening, to someone else's ethnographic listening? Um, and, and in pursuing that question, I, I ended up pursuing it sort of all the way back to the middle of the 19th century. So, you know, a couple of generations before Ansky, and I pursued it back into the Russian canon, the sort of famous mid-19th century Russian writers, you know, Turgenev and Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and folklorists like Vladimir Dahl, who is this unbelievably interesting writer of the most important mid-19th century Russian dictionary. Um, And I also found that part of the story was travelers to Russia, these Western European, famous Western European travelers like the Marquis de Custine. And I realized that they were all obsessed by listening and they were all obsessed by uh, kind of how good are they? Um, So each of them asking, how good am I? And how good is that other writer at listening to and recording the people, whatever they mean by the people, and that varies from one writer to another. And I realized they're they're interested in this question and that they were kind of like competing with each other to be the best one at listening to and recording the voice of the people. But often they were competing with themselves. They were competing kind of with a, a worse version of themselves. And they were saying, how do I have to reform myself to become really good at listening to and recording the voices of people who are unlike myself. Um, I imagine that as someone who makes podcasts, you're like interested in this, you know, this is what's happening right now. You're listening to and recording me and looking very friendly and, uh, you know, kind of performing, you're listening, you're smiling. And that's, I think that's what these writers were doing. 
they were like great creators of podcasts in the mid 19th century. Um, so I was interested in these questions. And then, and then I also was really motivated by the ways that questions about mediating other people's voices, doing that well or badly, seemed to me to be kind of modern questions. I realized it's not just these mid 19th century Russian writers and travelers to the Russian empire who see listening to and recording other people's voices as something you can do well or badly. I realized that my students care about this. My 21st century Stanford undergrads who are, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, they, they are concerned with questions of ethical mediation and representation. They're worried about what happens if you uh, unethically, incorrectly, um, maybe appropriate someone else's voice or art. Um, these, are, these are kind of urgent questions for people now, not only my students, but I think, you know, all of us. And, and that made me really fascinated by how those questions were being asked in the mid 19th century. And I think these questions about sort of Russia in specific, sort of who speaks for Russia? Is there a Russian people? Is there a unified Russian people? Or are they diverse? You know, Putin has an opinion. He's very confident that the Ukrainians are not real. They're just part of the Russian people who are deluded into thinking that they're different. Um, that that question is very urgent now in that there's a, a, a large destructive deadly war that's, you know, destabilizing the global economy. And that's happening basically over that question, um, or at least from Putin's perspective in his rhetoric, it's happening over that question. And I think that question of how, how unified is that great Eurasian landmass that's been ruled by from Moscow and St. Petersburg, how unified is it and how does language make it unified or maybe uh, make us hesitate about whether it's unified? That's, that's also a question that was urgent to the people I study and it's urgent to us now, we can't escape it. That's great. I like how you brought this to the the modern day. Yeah, it, it feels as if I don't want to bring Putin into this uh, necessarily, but you know, if he if if he was emulating uh, these Russian writers and and European observers of Russia from the mid nineteenth century and was obsessed with listening, maybe there wouldn't be a war. You know, uh, listening to others uh, is is difficult, and understanding where they're coming from, I think, uh, can only spread peace rather than war. But all that being said. You know, it sounded like the 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 writers and travelers to Russia that you profile in the book, they're 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 trying really hard to listen, and they're listening to uh, different classes: the emerging middle class, the laboring class. And yet, there's also this interesting uh, thing that you mentioned in the book that there was a conviction that they had that actually you need to be a part of the group to really understand and really hear them correctly. How did they bring those two things together? Yeah, maybe you can never bring those things together, right? And maybe that's a way that these mid 19th century characters are not not so different from us. You know, I think we too cannot be ever 100% confident that we have adequately heard someone else and that we can adequately convey their voice and speak for someone else. I don't I'm not sure we can do that. I'm not sure we can be confident we can do that even when it's people that we identify with strongly, you know, people of our 
class or ethnicity, people in our own family? Can you really speak for them? Um, we, we wonder that, I think, and we doubt ourselves, and, and rightly so. But we are also compelled to try to listen to other people and to convey their words um, and to record them. You know, that's what you're doing now. Um, that's, what, that's what people do, not just people who write books and make podcasts, but, you know, all of us in our daily lives. And so, so we kind of, we struggle with this. I think it's especially the case with uh, politicians, political activists, and verbal artists of any kind, you know, writers, songwriters, filmmakers, they're always asking, you know, have I, have I really heard these other people? Am I conveying their voices adequately or, or somehow inadequately? Am I sufficiently, do I get them? Am I, am I identifying with them enough to, um, to convey their voices adequately? And, and I think, you know, we we try, we fail, we try again, and I think that's what these 19th century writers do as well. I'm, you know, I'm basically sympathetic to these writers. Sometimes I worry that people might think I'm making fun of them because I say that they their listening is performative and they're kind of in contests with each other. Um, but I don't want it to come across as though I'm making fun of them. I mean, some of them are kind of funny, but but I want to. I really want to say, look, they're like us. And, you know, and at the same time, I, I do feel like I, I see moments when there's a tremendous danger in purporting to be able to adequately represent another group of people, like as Putin saying, you know, the Russians and the Ukrainians are just the same. And I can speak for the Ukrainians. You know, that is kind of what he's saying. He's saying, I can speak for the Ukrainians and the Ukrainians are saying, no, you can't, right? So that's that's an indication of a kind of failure of that impulse to speak for someone else. Certainly, most certainly. You mentioned that there's a, and you just alluded to it, that there is a gap uh, between writers or observers and the people. But you say that the, you know, a lot of, the, a lot of uh, previous examinations of uh, the writers that you profile have fo focused more about uh, you know, emotions and, and politics, but you say that there's actually uh, more of a connection to technology and performance. Tell us a little bit about this. Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, I think technology and the sort of changes in technology are a really important part of how we think about our own abilities to listen, to listen and to record. Um, and I think each new kind of technology gives us this fantasy, each new kind of uh, technology uh, for uh, reproducing the human voice uh, um, gives us this fantasy that we're going to finally establish fully adequate connections. That that whatever the uh, the sense we have of a kind of gap between us and other humans, that's going to fall away if we just use you know zoom recording correctly or or something you know new cameras i don't know we'll use our phones the right way um that's that's a fantasy that we know and that was also a fantasy in the mid-19th century um people especially fantasized about the telegraph that that would you know allow for this establishing of uh fully adequate almost mystical connections between people um each each new kind of technology i think 
prompts the people who encounter it, the, the media generation of people who are formed in part by their encounter with a specific new technology. We might be the Zoom generation, I'm sorry to say. Um, but each new, each new technology prompts people to, uh, to learn how to use it and then to want to show off how good they are at using it. And to imagine, like, if I'm the best at using this, I'm going to be able to really record and create connection. But, but then what happens is that we grow skeptical about the ability of these new technologies to do the thing we fantasize. You know, we realize Zoom is not the answer, although it's not bad, but it's still not the answer to all kinds of gaps among humans. So, so it's that, it's these ideas that come from media studies um, and that I especially find in studies of 19th century media. I read a lot of historians of 19th century sound and listening and telegraphy and, and I found them really inspirational. Um, so these ideas, I think, offer us a way to get past some uh, kind of tired, myths about Russia. So people who study Russia tend to say that Russians are exceptional, that Russian intellectuals are different from intellectuals elsewhere, that Russian, the Russian people are different, that Russia is a space that's completely unlike the rest of the world, especially importantly, unlike Western Europe or North America, that Russia is a place where there's this tragic gap between the intelligentsia and the people, or in Russian you say the narod, right? So there's this gap between the intelligentsia and the narod, and the intelligentsia is full of guilt, they're racked with guilt, they're, uh, they feel this gap to be a tremendous tragedy, they can never really, um, in order to reunite with the people, in order to find some common cause with the people, the narod, they have to turn away from everything that they, the intelligentsia, had learned, had kind of thought was important to themselves. They have to reform themselves. Um, so there is this, this discourse, this myth that like Russia is so special and different in this gap between the intelligentsia and the people. And what I say is I'm not, I don't believe that. I think that Russia is not so different from the rest of the world. I think that mid 19th century Russian intellectuals, yes, they thought there was a gap between themselves and the people they were listening to, but the same thing was true in the United States and France and Colombia and Japan and you know other places that people, that historians of the 19th century write about, you know, excitingly. Uh, um, you know, Russia is not so different. And also I wanna argue the 19th century is not so different. And we have more in common with the 19th century than we tend to think. And Russia is more like the rest of the world than we tend to think. And I like thinking about media and sound because this allows us, it puts us into a kind of transnational frame of mind where we're less likely to fall into believing um, these myths of national uh, exceptionalism. I like that a lot. It, it makes total sense uh, it, to just, you know, take Russia as this, oh, it's got to be completely different than all these other, it doesn't make any sense. I, I mean, obviously there are, there are cultural differences and there are different histories that every nation has, but 
overall the commonalities are, are much greater than the differences. I, I think that's true. And, and I find it really uh, disturbing and fascinating that Putin in his rhetoric is so strongly insisting on a fundamental gap between Russia and the West. He has been issuing all kinds of statements and his, his people also issue these statements. Uh, some are more formal, some are less formal, in which he kind of harps on this theme of Russia is a place of tradition and collectivism and uh, virtue and the West is a place of bad, newfangled uh, dissolution and uh, bad individualism and bad globalism and and they are fundamentally different and I just feel like that's not true you know there's collectivism here there's individualism there there's tradition in both places there's globalism in both places it's uh, this this binary Russia and the, of the binary dividing Russia and the West is something that you can see uh, is important to the mid 19th century characters I study but it's constructed and we should be skeptical about it. And now again, it's resurfacing in our politics and we should again be skeptical about it. I do think that you hear some, some American, some Western thinkers feeling this impulse to uh, reproduce Putin's uh, sense of a fundamental distinction between Russia and the West. And we, you hear people here also saying Russia is totally different from us. We're totally different from them. We should not do that. That just plays into his hands and it's false. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it plays, and this is, if we want to take a global perspective, this is what every leader does when they're gearing up for war and they're in a war. You have to, for your own psychological health, you know, here you are killing people. Well, let's not make them people. Let's make them the other. They're really bad. It's it's. Don't, you don't have to feel guilty about them dying. And every country does that to their opponent. It turns them into an animal. Or you see the imagery all around the world. Like the the enemy is not us. Right. That it makes it easier to go to war with them. That it makes it hard to end the war. Well, and that and that too. Yeah. Yeah, it's we're not in a good time of history, but it is again. You see the historical trends of this happening before. Um, but spinning into a more positive note, <laughs> tell us some of your favorite stories or anecdotes from the book. Oh well, so I really enjoyed the research for chapter seven. Chapter seven is on Dostoevsky and his time in prison. You know, Dostoevsky was uh, he was a part of a radical reading group as a young man, and then he and other people in that reading group were rounded up and punished, and he was sent to Siberia, where he was in prison for four years, and then he served as an army private uh, for the rest of a, of a decade, so it was a long time. And he ended up writing this wonderful, absolutely fascinating uh, novel about someone very much like him in a prison very much like the prison where he was. It's called Notes from the Dead House. I recommend it. It's really, really fascinating. Uh, um, and it's, it's, a, it's a fast read. It's, it's marvelous. Uh, um, so, so he, while he was in the prison, while Dostoevsky himself was in the prison, he kept notes of everything he heard. 
or of a lot of things he heard. He had epilepsy, so he would frequently be sent to the sick ward in the prison, and there the doctor let him keep a notebook. He wasn't supposed to keep a notebook, but the doctor kept the notebook for him. And in that notebook, Dostoevsky would write down all of the phrases and songs and jokes and everything that he heard from the other prisoners who were people unlike himself. They were for the most part not writers. They were not all literate, although they were more literate in general than people of their class were in the sort of general Russian population, interestingly, but uh, they were ethnically diverse. So Dostoevsky was fascinated by them and he spent his time in prison as an ethnographer. Um, and then he drew very heavily on that prison notebook when he went to write notes from the dead house. And so that's something that people who study Dostoevsky know very well. Um, this has been you know, discussed a lot. But what I'm really fascinated by is the way that Dostoevsky um, was especially interested by how the different prisoners would get involved in insult contests with each other. These were what anthropologists or linguistic anthropologists call ritual insults. So they're not insults that are really meant to be taken seriously. You don't respond to them by, you know, getting in a fist fight with the person who's insulting you. Rather, this is a verbal contest in which you're insulted and you are supposed to respond with an even more uh, elaborate insult. And then your opponent should respond with an even more verbally creative, elaborate, improbable insult. There are elements of this kind of insult battle around the world. Like you can see ritual insults uh, happening in, in a lot of different places. They've been studied a lot in Africa. They are very, I also work with Yiddish. So there's definitely ritual insult contests as a part of Eastern European Jewish culture, Yiddish culture. You see them represented in the work of Sholem Aleichem. Uh, they are more associated with women in Yiddish than in other parts of the world. It's also fascinating. Their uh, rap battles are seen by some people as being associated with insult contests. So. I feel that people haven't uh, talked enough about Dostoevsky's interest in these uh, ritual insults in prison and the ways that he reproduces them. He, he listens to them, he records them, and then he reproduces them in his uh, autobiographical novel, Notes from the Dead House. Um, and at a certain point, after thinking about this a lot, I realized that Dostoevsky not only uh, is fascinated by the prisoner's ritual insults, but he himself eventually gets involved in an insult battle with another writer. So this other writer, Nikolai Liskov, uh, Dostoevsky's contemporary, uh, Liskov and Dostoevsky are both the children of priests, right? Their fathers were uh, from the priestly estate. Their fathers had gone to, had gotten a, the, the education that the sons of priests would get, but then their fathers decided not to be priests and went and did other things. This was very common in the 19th century in Russia. There were kind of too many priests' sons for the available priests' jobs, and priests' sons had some education. They were literate, so they could go to med school or, you know, do other things. So that's what happened to Dostoevsky's dad and Liskov's dad. So they're from this priestly background, and then eventually, um, Dostoevsky and Liskov get in a fight in print about which of them is better at representing the voices of priests, uh, or which of them is better at representing priests. So 
uh, Dostoevsky publishes something about priests. Liskov writes this review under a false name, under a pseudonym, making fun of how Dostoevsky represents priests. And then Dostoevsky publishes something, say, making fun of Liskov for how he makes fun of him under an assumed name for representing the voice of voices of priests. And Dostoevsky says, he's so bad at representing priests. No real priests speak the way he says priests speak. So I think that this is so interesting in so many ways. Partly it's interesting because it's this fascinating dynamic of how people identify with, but not fully with the group that their parents are in. Uh, um, you know, I think that's probably true of all of us. You know, we, we sometimes think we can represent what our own parents or grandparents might say. And then at other times we, we realize there is a gap and we can't, and we might be kind of caught out. We might be, it might be revealed that we're inadequate in doing this. Mm -hmm. um, but it's so, it's just fascinating that it's specifically priests. But what's also really so interesting is that I think Dostoevsky and Liskov are under, they're involved in a ritual insult battle. Just yeah. as just as Dostoevsky saw his fellow prisoners doing in in the prison in Siberia, that's hilarious. Did, did uh, if you can say on the podcast what was what were some of your favorite insults? <laughs> so there's a lot of insults uh, that Dostoevsky records in the prison that have to do with birds, and I think that's really interesting. Uh, in the the specific ritual insult contest that he describes in detail. Uh, pretty early in Notes from the Dead House. It ends with one of the prisoners saying, what kind of bird are you? And the other one saying, I'm the Kagan bird, which is this like mythical bird. And then everyone laughs and that's like a really good answer. And that the one who says he's the Kagan bird wins, which is strange. But also um, Dostoevsky constantly records how um, both in his, uh, in his notebook and in uh, letters he writes later about his prison experience and in the novel, Notes from the Dead House, you see that the prisoners are always insulting Dostoevsky and the people like him, right? So Dostoevsky is uh, an upper-class person. He's unlike most of the other prisoners and he, but there's a few people who are like him in the prison and the, the lower class, mostly peasant prisoners, called Dostoevsky and the other upper class prisoners iron beak. They say, you iron beak, you peck and peck at us. Uh, but now we have the upper hand because you're stuck in prison with us mm -hmm. um, and we're going to torment you. Right. So I'm fascinated by like, what is iron beak? Yeah. Um, I thought about this a lot and I, I came to the conclusion that it might be a reference to um, mumming which is a Christmas time tradition in, um, in Eastern Europe. I mean, also in Western Europe, like if you're from Philly, you know about mumming. <laughs> um, so it's this tradition of people dressing up in these different kind of uh, ritualized costumes and displaying themselves, uh, maybe going door to door and asking for treats or maybe going on, having a parade if you're in Philadelphia. <laughs> um, and and so one of the costumes that one of the disguises that was known in in Russia was uh, being a bird. Uh, young men would dress as a bird and they would 
have a stick with a kind of hook on it and they would use that hook to like attack people and so that the people would give them you know candy or nuts or whatever so i i suspect that the prisoner's insult has to do with this kind of ritualized mumming uh version of a bird but I, i was really fascinated by by birds throughout the book i felt that wherever people talked about recording vernacular language, the image of birds would surface. And I found this not only in, uh, in the writing of a lot of Russian writers, I also found it in Dickens, uh, you know, other mid 19th century writers from places other than Russia. Um, I don't know why. I think there's something about how birds, birds are, they can fly away. We can't catch them. Uh, so they're a little bit like oral language when you think about it as something that you're attempting to record, but that you might not succeed in recording. But there's other reasons too why birds provide a really compelling metaphor for spoken language. We see it in Homer, of course, mm-hmm. right? Homer has uh, winged words right, the idea of people speaking in winged words. So so it's an ancient metaphor that birds and words are somehow connected, but there's also some, some ways that I think uh, birds are experienced in 19th century Russia as uh, in, in kind of a distinctive way that causes that metaphor to be especially appealing. Interesting, that's really interesting. I mean, I think that that's, um, wasn't there augury that was uh, seeing birds as a, uh an omen so i mean we see that in the movies if there's something bad's gonna happen you hear the owl hooting or you hear like the crow going so there's augury going way back when as well as as the birds and twitter is an example of that they use a bird as an example a little bird told me it's going back to augury that the birds were an omen of something that's going to happen in the future yeah, yeah. I mean, and there's the actual history of birds and communication, right? That's there's true. That's true. With the, pigeons with carrying messages in Harry Potter, owls carry messages. That's true. That's true. Um, and and of course, birds birds are recording devices, right? Birds are actually recording devices. Like we tend to think of, you know, parrots are. You can teach a parrot to say something. So then the parrot records your words, and it will record your words in your accent. Yeah. But in, in the mid-19th century, there was a, a pretty lively trade in, in the Russian Empire. There was a lively trade in what were called Russian canaries, hmm. which were these, was a mix of uh, canaries from the Macronesian islands and these local Russian forest birds, um, the siskin, that were, that were hardier so they could endure the, the cold climate. Um, from like the 1820s, 1830s, these hybrid Russian canaries were being bred in villages in, uh, in the Russian interior, and then they would be sold to urban consumers who would keep them in cages and have, you know, like a gramophone. It's before you have a gramophone. Um, you, they, they would give you sound entertainment. The way that you can see how these uh, Russian canaries became recording devices is that the peasants who would uh, be rearing them in these villages in the interior, they would cage 
their canaries for sale next to local birds, like especially nightingales, famous for their beautiful song. So the Russian canaries would learn to reproduce the song of the nightingale. Wow, that's and, brilliant. Yeah, and you have these amazing accounts of people very carefully training either the Russian canaries or songbirds that they had captured to sing like other birds that were understood to be virtuosic, virtuosic singers. Like uh, there's this account in Turgenev has this amazing um, text where he is uh, purportedly, I mean, I'm sure he really is recording the voice of someone he knows who's a, a peasant and a songbird hunter who uh, says, you want to know how to capture really good nightingales? I know how to capture the best nightingales. And then he tells you in great detail where you find the nightingales that are the best singers and how you capture them. It's very elaborate and complicated. And then he says, you, um, you take your nightingale that you captured, you hide it in your hat, and then you go into a tavern where there's an especially good, a nightingale who's an especially good singer in a cage and you stand under the cage. And then the nightingale in your hat hears the really good singer and it learns to reproduce that song. And then you get more money for your nightingale because you've you've recorded more desirable music into your nightingale, which becomes like a recording device. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I love Doesn't that, that make you want to do a podcast just about that? Yeah, totally, totally. I think bring you back on, go go deeper into this. Um, Actually, you should you should go if you're interested in this. There's someone, there's this uh, young woman uh, in some teaches somewhere in England, Olga Petri, who writes about these nightingales and the kind of songbird, the Russian canaries, and she's amazing. And I feel like someone should make a podcast about her stuff because it's so cool. Oh, I'll check that out. That's amazing. Yeah, it reminds me of the. Of the I saw it, it was a one of the BBC wildlife specials there it wasn't a, a nightingale but it was a bird that had imitated the, the language that this bird had included people that were nearby like children playing and the parents yelling at the children and things like that and it was the bird had, could could imitate that it was incredible yeah birds are incredible yeah and yeah and I think that is something that that's uh you know I don't think that Russia is distinctively you know silent or autocratic or or collectivist but i do feel like maybe it's distinctive to think about these places that have huge forested expanses and a whole lot of birds mm, and okay. and maybe that's the the sort of real distinctiveness is the the distinctiveness of the soundscape nice i like that i like that it's beautiful beautiful well you 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 said this in so many words earlier but this is one of the quotes from the very beginning of the book and it's from the explanatory dictionary of the living great russian language from vladimir dal a word is like a sparrow it flies away and you can't catch it very true but in this very particular case you have caught a lot of words uh, and you've you've captured a lot of really great insights and so it's a pleasure talking with you. This is uh, it's been a lot of fun, uh, and I've learned a lot. And I would encourage our listeners to see what you have captured in this new book, "Recording Russia: Trying to Listen in the 19th Century." Thank you so much for coming on our podcast, Gabriela. Thank you so much. This was a pleasure.
That was Gabriela Safran, author of the new book, Recording Russia, Trying to Listen in the 19th Century. If you'd like to purchase Gabriela's new book, use the promo code 09POD to save 30% on our website at cornellpress.cornell.edu. If you live in the UK, use the discount code CSAnnounce and visit the website combinedacademic.co.uk. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast.